0: This is episode 31 of The Great Train Show. Today, a rail journey from Vladivostok to Moscow, the lure of Stevenson's rocket, and sound recorder Dennis Ritson critiques one of Tim's recordings.
1: Greetings, I'm Tim Fisher, and welcome to episode 31 of The Great Train Show. Today, it's amazing the things you discover while travelling on trains. Today, a very interesting couple who have survived a trip on the Great Trans-Siberian across Russia. And we'll come back to them in a moment. They even discovered Yul Bryna's birthplace. And there's the magical lure of the first modern steam locomotive. And a special treat from the Great Train Show's own sound recordist, ABC's Dennis Ritson. Emma Griffiths was the ABC correspondent following in the footsteps by degrees of Monica Attard, based in Moscow from 2004 to 2007. At the time, Emma's husband, Simon Johnson, was also there in Russia, working as a camera operator and editor for various media outlets. Now, of course, being vibrant Australians on posting overseas, they took the opportunity to travel by train and created a special website for ABC News Online called, this is dear to my heart, Trans-Siberia, a rail journey from Vladivostok to Moscow with seven stops in between. Let's hear more of this. I welcome to The Great Train Show, Emma Griffiths and Simon Johnson.
0: Hello, Tim. Hello,
1: Tim. The idea of, in fact, taking that extra step, yes, riding the Trans-Siberian, but
2: multimedia taking it right through to this news online sprung from... It sprung actually from a friend of ours who worked for News Online, and when we suggested we were doing the trip, he thought it would be wonderful for us to take the ABC audience through it with us. And that is still up on site? One can still go to that site?
0: You can find it. It is still there. I think you might have to Google our names or the Trans-Siberian, but it's up there.
1: How uncomfortable, Emma, was the practical aspects that terrorise older people, simple things like access to and from the loo, And how ugly was Valu when you got there?
0: It depended on the trains because um, there are a lot of trains that run along that railway and some of them are really, really nice and some of them are pretty dreadful. So you do have to prepare yourself for some ordinary sights, but there's a lot of things that are very comforting about it. You know, some of the decor just reminded us of, you know, our grandma's lounge rooms, you know, it was lovely and there'd be a lady on every carriage called the Providenza who would come and knock on your door in the morning and make you tea, which was just a great luxury. So it was, you know, it was a bit of a mixed bag. You just have to prepare yourself to rough it in some instances.
1: Now, obviously, you didn't stay on the same train because there were seven stops in between, so you tended to drop back 24 hours, 36 hours. And when you went to... Uh The next train, it was up market, down market, but tended to
2: offer, what, four sleeping berths per cabin type thing? You have the option of four berths, two berths, or the dormitory type ones, and we uh, often took the two berth ones.
0: We weren't prepared to rough it that much. That much.
2: (laughs) I have experienced the uh, dormitory ones on a trip from Momets to Moscow, um, which was quite the experience. And we're talking with Emma
1: Griffiths and Simon Johnson, fresh by degrees from uh, the Trans-Siberian, where
2: they've set up this website, where... Does Yul Brenner fit in this picture? Yule, which wasn't found out until after his death, or wasn't really told, was born in Vladivostok uh, to a Swiss father and Russian mother. Uh, his father was an engineer, and um, th- when they left Russia, he told everyone after that that they um, grew up in Japan and he was part Japanese.
1: There's sort of arrogance about Yul Brynner over the years after that uh, King and I, Rama the Fifth role, and one or two others. And perhaps that might explain it. Mind you, fleet of foot at Vladivostok. (laughs) The best phone call I got was from Austrade when I was Minister for Trade with Vladimir of Vladivostok saying, I think the banks are going to go under tonight. We have some uh, Austrade monies in the relevant bank in Vladivostok. Can I have permission to put it under my pillow? Uh, (laughs) And uh, he drew the money out, put it under his pillow, and sure enough, the next day, the banks folded in Vladivostok and the Australian taxpayer... By the action of Vladimir of Vladivostok, Austrade fame, saved the day. But Vladivostok Terminus Station, I always had visions of some grand eastern terminus, uh, let me down gently.
0: Um, it was pretty grand and it was the first Siberian or out there, it's called the Russian Far East train station that we saw. It's still pretty grand, I think. You know, we were sort of expecting Siberia to be pretty much a wasteland. But when we got out there, there are massive towns out there that have grown up along uh, this railway and uh, it's, it's impressive. But Vladivostok's very much the wild east of Russia. It is a crazy town. Uh, a, a lot of aspects, it's very lawless. And Yul Brynner's home now when we went to check it out because, you know, we're fans and uh, we thought, yeah, this is something quirky. We'll have a look at this. There's no sign that it's Yul Brynner's home, but uh, we figured out that it was the headquarters for a political party now and there are all these armed guards around it. So so Syme very surreptitiously took a photo of it just so we'd have that memento.
1: Now, tell me, Emma, was that where you nearly got arrested or that was further down
2: the track?
0: Oh, well, you that know. That was further down the it track. It was further down the track. It became a bit of a running joke with us that, you know, you didn't have to do very much to seem to be at threat of getting arrested along the railway line. But um, Syme's, uh, Syme took some marvellous photos on, for this trip, which we still look back on and just I just think they're beautiful. And one of them did nearly get you into a little bit of trouble.
2: The train stopped at a small town between Haberosk and Yekaternburg. Uh, and it was a beautiful long twilight, which uh, you get in Siberia during summer. And they had a bit of rain, so the lights were reflecting on the, in the puddles on the train platform and against the train. So I thought, this is too good. So I stepped off the train, took my large SLR camera, not my the small pocket camera, which was meant to be used in those situations to not to get the attention of guards and so forth and uh snapped away looked over my shoulder and the lovely providence the lady looking after our carriage sort of looked a little bit shocked and then disappeared into her carriage and two guards were standing next to me demanding to know what i was doing and i gave them a quick look at the photo sort of explained how nice it was And they ummed a nerd, scratched their chin. The train whistle blew. And I'm on the
0: carriage going, oh, my God.
2: (laughs) I started to get a little bit nervous. He'll be banished to Siberia forevermore. (laughs) And fortunately, they sort of gave me a tap on the shoulder and pointed me in the direction of the train and that I should get on there very quickly. And get out of town
1: fast. Uh, We're talking with Emma Griffiths and Simon Johnson on uh, exploits in Russia for several years earlier in this 21st century, and riding the trains to St. Petersburg, often enough, is now, what, about a seven-hour journey
2: overnight? The fast train, yes. Mm -hmm. And there's a fast daylight train. That's it, and even faster on that one. That's five hours on that
0: one. There are some really luxurious trains now that are um, on that railway line, and you will pay for it. I mean, it's not cheap, but they have cabins that have their own loos and their own bathrooms, so that would be quite nice.
1: And back in Moscow, I think I'm right in saying it's the only capital city where Stalin drew a circle on a map and they have the absolute 360 degree circle line which is a pure circle i think it has a russian name
0: i'm not sure of that tim but yeah it's the circle line yeah. and and uh, it's a it's a circle and <laughs> you can <laughs> get it... to um you know places in the city relatively quickly on it their metro system is amazing
1: the grandeur of the chandeliers and the arches and the carvings and near there is of course the russian opera house bolshoi But in fact, you discovered one way out there in the middle of Siberia at Krasnoyarsk.
0: That's right, yeah, Krasnoyarsk. This was a really nice thing about doing the blog that we were tourists and, you know, it just made us look for interesting things to do along the way. So when we got there, we went, okay, what can you do in Krasnoyarsk? And there was a really nice performing arts centre. Russia's known for its amazing talent in the performing arts. So we thought we'd go to the opera and they had The Marriage of Figaro on and so we hadn't seen that and we're not big opera fans anyway really, but there's an experience for you, opera in Siberia. So we went along, the tickets were $2.50 each and then they offered us opera glasses and that was another dollar. We went, oh well, okay, I think we can stretch to that. And then we got in there and it was the front row seats. So we didn't need the opera glasses at all, but it was a great experience.
1: These are the joys of train travel. You never know what's going to turn up from left, right, centre or even from the luggage rack above your head. That's right. And Emma Griffiths and Simon Johnson, I really thank you for giving us this insight into one railway line I've not yet done. I've done uh, Moscow briefly but not uh, Moscow to Vladivostok and now I'm not going to be able to do it for a couple of years. But it is just a joy to hear from the coalface. I congratulate you not just on that and starting the... Blog on ABC News Online. But three years of great reporting from Moscow. Well done.
0: Thanks, Tim.
2: Thank you, Tim. Take care. Bye.
1: Well, the Stevenson Rocket was built in 1829, and of course it was labelled the first uh, modern rail locomotive. Uh, Like the Flying Scotsman, the Stevenson Rocket has that magical appeal. It was tested at the Rainhill Trials, I think I'm right in saying, as it uh, prepared to take over the operation of the new Liverpool-Manchester track. But rail enthusiast Michael Kemp knows more about it than I do. He's quite an authority on the Stevenson Rocket, which he had a good look at, close up, at the Science Museum in London. Welcome on board the Great Train Show, Michael.
3: Hello, Tim. Thanks.
1: Just exactly where in London is that particular Science Museum? Because there's a transport museum up near uh, Covent Garden, Uh, but I think the Science Museum's down more towards Kensington?
3: Yes, the Science Museum's in Kensington, along with the Victoria and Albert and the Natural History Museum. When you took apart the Science Museum, your main focus was on that first original rocket locomotive? Well, the Science Museum is one of these museums, like the two I just mentioned, that you probably, if you've got the time, should visit. There's a lot of history there. So I was at the Science Museum to see the rocket and just to see what else the Science Museum had to offer.
1: The Rainhill Trials. There was a magnificent documentary on those. Somehow, Stevenson, in addition to building the Stockton Darlington, George, and then later his son, Robert, in addition to building the first specialised mixed railway passenger and freight double track from Liverpool to Manchester, managed to build the best locomotive as well. What was the outstanding
3: features advancement with the Rocket? Rocket was sort of known as one of the modern, as a modern steam locomotive, and it's been sort of the base for what steam locomotives ever since then have been based on. It was the first engine to have more than one pipe or tubes, shall we say, boiler tubes, to take the hot gases from the fire through to the blast pipe and heat the water to make steam. This is something that nobody else had done up until this point, so in some ways it was a revolution. It certainly was, and it proved so damn good that it knocked off
1: all rivals in those Rainhill trials. But it also managed to skittle uh, Huskisson on the opening day of Liverpool-Manchester when he stepped back into the path
3: of same said rocket. Yes, that's right. He was one of the uh, early unfortunate victims of train accidents. From ever since, there's a uh, memorial to him on the banks of the Thames, round Chelsea area in London. A steam locomotive
1: is not dead yet. In fact, in parts of South America, a steam electric. Locomotive is being uh, developed rather than going through to mechanical reciprocating pistons, the steam will power a generator, turbine driven, geared down, and that power will then go to electric motors on each axle. So maybe the steam engine is going to be around in a different form in the 21st century as it was when first built in the 19th
3: century. That's quite possible. Also, in the UK, it should be out by now, but There's a group have undertaken rebuilding a completely new A1 class from scratch. It's going to be named Tornado, and its number will be one after the last A1 that was built. They're the Mallards, uh, Uh, Nigel Gresley. Yeah, before that, even before Flying Scotsman Mallard, it was the original big Pacific that was built for the LNER.
1: We're talking with Michael Kemp, who went on from his UK stint, have a good look at uh, the glacier express that's a very special train that uh, runs through brig at one stage uh, where did you join
3: i joined the train in brig but the train starts off in uh, zermatt down by the further south down by the matterhorn and you went from brig to where up to san moritz and stayed the night because basically once you arrived here it's about 6 o'clock at night and it was january so it was getting quite dark
1: uh, so, you were broadly heading east, and that was narrow gauge or standard gauge?
3: It's meter gauge. So, meter yes, gauge. narrow gauge.
1: Rack and pinion? No.
3: Yes, some of the way, you know, some of it's just normal and some has rack and pinion because the grades get up to one and nine in places. Comfortable journey? Very comfortable. The carriages are built by a company in Italy that have dealings with Ferrari, so you can imagine that it's a pretty comfy seating.
1: Yes, indeed, and tunnels, of course, 91 tunnels, 291 bridges. But it wasn't until 1982 that that long tunnel of 15,000 metres, the old scale, it's getting up to three or four kilometres, was open. Is there so much traffic on that line that justified that tunnel, or tourism justified that tunnel?
3: Probably a bit of both. Basically, the tunnel in question is called the Fircarouse Tunnel, and uh, it was opened in 1982 at 15... 1,407 metres. Before that, the trains couldn't traverse the line in the winter. You had to basically shut the line and go away and come back in spring.
1: So now they can offer a a -a round-a-year product. That's right. From from Busy Brig, a big junction on the Geneva, uh, Lausanne, Martigny line straight through down to Como and Milan on the north-south axis. And then you've got this narrow gauge and a couple of other more direct lines all feed into Brig. Junction. So it's quite a a big centre just in the middle of Switzerland. When you eventually get to St Moritz, a magnificent terminus railway station, ornate or just functional?
3: Functional I think is probably the best word for it. I didn't spend a a lot of the time at the railway station. There's other stations on the line which are probably far more elaborate. I had a day in St Moritz in January and the strangest thing you see is the lake that is a major part of the area is completely frozen to the point where they can actually play polo on it.
1: Yes indeed. And finally, Michael, you then made it, of course, from Switzerland down into Italy by a narrow-gauge railway line, probably the same metre gauge, from St. Moritz, dropping right down into Tirano in the Sondrio Valley. That'd be, what, about a four-hour journey?
3: Something like that. Yeah, I actually ended up doing it twice, because I went down into Italy and back up into Switzerland, and then decided to spend more time up there and did the whole journey in reverse.
1: Okay. Was it comfortable on that bit from St. Moritz to Tirano?
3: I didn't use the Benina Express, which is that line's equivalent of the Glacier Express. Yeah. I just used one of the other passenger services and was travelling in the, um, what they call an electric rail car. So basically it looks like a locomotive, but has um, passenger seats in the middle.
1: Well, Michael Kemp, another insight into another chunk of rail operations in the uh in the UK uh, with the Stevenson rocket and in Switzerland with Elements of the Glacier Express and right through to Tirano, Italy. I thank you for your time today. Wish you well and look forward to seeing you on a train near Rome
3: soon. Thanks, Tim. Take care. Cheers.
1: Great Train Show comes to you today from Sydney where previously we've recorded with Dennis Ritson of ABC fame and he's going to do a critique of one of my recordings which yes, I made in the USA in the middle of the year and I can always learn something and uh, this recording, it's from a train trip near Mount Rushmore there's a small tourist railway, standard gauge and the locomotive was a Baldwin tank engine uh, locomotive 110 and a wheel configuration geared for the mountains 2662. Let's have a listen as a train climbs up to the summit of Tin Mill Hill. Welcome back to The Great Train Show, Dennis Ritson. Nice to have you back on board again. Oh, thanks, Tim. Thanks for inviting me back. And you've just heard my amateur recording of this Mount Rushmore tourist train uh, on standard gauge, hammering away, but I think first comment, I must confess, a slight overloading on the whistle into the microphone.
4: Yeah, I noticed that. Uh, that's always a problem. If you've got an opportunity to set the levels on your machine, your uh, recorder, that's so uh, the whistle peaks at the loudest point that you're safe with, then usually everything else will fall under unless someone shouts in your ear on the carriage you're in.
1: Well, that's the problem too. As a noisy American couple, we're discussing the merits of Obama versus McCain, which is quite interesting to me. As a matter of fact, so I was torn between listening to their conversation and getting on with the job of recording the steam engine. But uh, there's a message for all our amateur sound recorders out there. Set the microphone level to the noisiest, but do you not lose a bit of the intricacy of sound, the complexity of sound, on the softer downhill grades, for argument's sake?
4: Well, you would, yeah, but uh, normally I find the most interesting part of a train recording is on the hill where it's working hard. And if the part of it where it's trundling downhill I don't normally uh, uh, go for or wouldn't bother keeping. All the recordings I've uh, put on this show have been uh, climbing hills. And two of the best,
1: one featuring a growling thunderstorm in the distance, magnificent, and the other, of course, uh, featuring plenty of uh, whipbird action alongside the Mwilumbar track. Dennis, uh, that aside, could you detect, probably not, but it was 2662, but you'd have a comment on the piston action of that particular locomotive?
4: Yep, you could tell it was an articulated engine, a mallet or something like that because of the staccato beat. I felt that the exhaust beats from the two units... Uh, were going in out of step, which often happens. And you could actually tell that it was uh, an articulated engine with two units under the locomotive's frame. Units, I mean the uh, pistons, uh, the motion gear. And there was that... Again,
1: part of that equation. Now, I confess to you, Dennis Ritson, that a few weeks back we allowed onto this program an amateur recording from South Australia, which was a damn good recording of uh, two engines in conjunction pulling out near Port Pirie, if I remember rightly, that, of course, brings its own complexity of recording, and you're always able to separate out the, the two engines
4: in harmony or not in harmony, as the case may be. Hmm. When you've got two engines passing you, you sort of uh, look at it and see which one you think is going to be the loudest and ride the gains to anticipate the loudest engine or the louder engine going past. And if you take that into account, then the engine that maybe isn't quite as loud will slip in under the uh, overload. It was a recording by John
1: Masson, and he did a pretty good job, as a matter of fact. And for our listeners' benefit, of course, two steam engine locomotives, communications were pretty uh, irregular, especially if that second locomotive happened to be put down the back end of Mm. the train in yesteryear. Uh, So how did they work it? They had a system of whistles, signals, but there must have been times when one locomotive was pushing harder, pulling harder than the other?
4: Oh, I'd say so, and uh, New South Wales frowned on the practice of banking a passenger train just because of the fact that if one engine slowed down or started to push too hard, it could send a, a shock through the train. It could even seriously derail the train on a sharp curve. So, yeah, they frowned upon the practice. But it's more common these days on heritage trains. We learned on our last program that in the French National Railway Museum,
1: in controlled circumstance, they have tipped a steam locomotive on its side which is a unique way of viewing a steam locomotive. And the Powerhouse Museum is now going to install hydraulic tippers so that uh, midweek uh, the 3830 can be tipped on its side. I think not, but they might think about it. Maybe they'll find another locomotive they can tip on its side. That, of course, uh, was a bit of lateral thinking and shows why some museums can be different and dynamic, complete with the
4: noises that come with all of that. Mm-hmm. Well, they've got a 12-class there, which is a much lighter engine than their 38-class, which is 3830. And that'll be probably a lot easier to tip on its side in the cost of the hydraulics and everything. So Dennis Ritson
1: and Tim Fisher, of great train show fame, recommend to the Powerhouse Museum board down the road that they start uh, preparing to tip on its side the smaller locomotive called, exactly? 1243. 1243, so there's no confusion. We'll leave 3830 vertical. And tip. Uh. Now, if 3830 and uh, 3801 were together, hauling to Moss Vale or beyond, even then there would still be enough differentiation for you to distinguish both of those steam locomotives under
4: grade. The slower the better. When they're both travelling at high speed, you just hear the roar, uh, and it's hard to determine that there are two engines in there, except when they go past, you hear them go past. But when they're slogging, it's much easier. Then they sound like an articulated engine or, or a, say, a 60 class, a Garrett. We're talking with Dennis
1: Ritson, who's with us here at ABC and is a perfectionist at the art form of recording steam. As the diesel now dominates and fast electric, and not so fast electric for that matter, uh, in certain of our capital cities in Australia, let alone India and the world. Do you find that there are still in the beat of a Deltic in UK or a Heritage Diesel in Queensland enough
4: to interest you in the genre transfer from steam to the future? Oh, yes. The GMs in New South Wales are, are very noisy locomotives. Uh, also, a G, there's a G-Class, uh, which is uh, migrated from Victoria. They'll all sound good. I've done recordings of them at night in regular service and on heritage trains. Yeah, they're, they're quite good. Uh, the CLPs, which were a modified CL from South Australia, they ran the Indian Pacific for a while, and uh, I got quite a couple of uh, very good recordings for those uh, way out west, you know, uh, climbing hills. And uh, their, their great feature was a wonderful subsonic resonance between the two locomotives. When their motors idle down, you get this huge, which we measured on by playing one tape through a spectrum analyzer at 8 hertz. And it hurt the ears, to, for a small pun, and uh, it was so loud and so imposing. Well, Dennis Ritson, uh, it's just
1: terrific to... Go into the detail. Your next set of tracks will be coming to a great train show soon. Uh, Which
4: direction are you heading? Well, uh, surprisingly, there's a few steam engines uh, heading up um, at this time of the year. Very late in the season, there's a couple of uh, new trips come in, which we weren't expecting, but we'll probably go out and have a look at them. Uh, There'll be a steam locomotive back on the Cockatoo train for a couple of times before the end of the year. Uh, that I'm very excited about that. That's a locomotive that hasn't been in the Sydney area for a long, long time, 59.17. So looking forward to seeing and her. And it's come back out of Thulemere. Uh, it's come out of Cowra. Ah, like, the Lachlan Valley yep. crew. Yep. Well, good luck to them. Yep.
1: Uh, no doubt they'll be charging a shilling or two for the... Uh, for the privilege. For the privilege <laughs> or vice versa. So a different set of staccato resonance up the escarpment.
4: And that wonderful steamboat whistle that we've heard before with 59.10. We thank you for your recordings.
1: We thank you for your critique of my microphone overload somewhere near Mount Rushmore, mid 2008. And we'll welcome you back with future recordings on The Great Train Show. Take care. Thank you. That's Dennis Ritson. And that's it for this week's Great Train Show. Till next time, I'm Tim Fisher.
3: choo you, 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 me home,